This is uh, some serious stuff that we need to give attention to as we make our way through the book of Revelation. Now, I don't know what kind of a day you've had. Maybe you've had a bad day. But I guarantee you, I guarantee you, it was not as bad as what it'll be in this day in Revelation 9 because of all that we see happening here. Now, just uh, so we can orient ourselves as we get our bearings straight, we have been through a series of seven seals. The seventh seal was introducing us to seven trumpets. And uh, so far in the last uh, uh, week or so, we've been taking a look at these different trumpets. And the first trumpet, just by way of quick review, the first trumpet out of Revelation 8 uh, meant that then a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So this is the scorching of the earth and the environment. You talk about global warming, man, it's going to happen, let me tell you. And without trees, there's going to be obviously soil erosion. There's going to be mudslides, or at least without a third of the trees. Without a third of, um, uh, um, the, with the, the third of the earth being burned up and uh, all the green grass burned up, you've got uh, some oxygen depletion. You've got the ecosystem thrown into chaos and confusion. And obviously these three things dramatically impact the quality of life and food supply. Think about just the livestock that grazes on grass, which will no longer be in existence. The second trumpet was sounded. And with the second trumpet came a third of the sea, became blood, a third of the sea life is killed, and a third of sea vessels are destroyed. This is similar to plague number one in Exodus 7, when God brought out the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, where the Nile was turned to blood. We talked about last week when things are as um, when when the sea becomes uh, a third of the sea, which we're talking about salt water becomes blood. You've, you've got a stench in the air, but you add on top of that a third of the sea life being killed, and you've got just a putrid smell around the world. Obviously, this impacts fishing industry, the economic impact of import and export businesses, cargo and navy vessels what a military impact this will be on uh, some of the Navy um, forces around the world. Trumpet number three is blown. With the sound of trumpet number three, a third of all fresh water becomes bitter. I mentioned last week how only 2.5% of the Earth's water is fresh water. 97.5% of the Earth's water is salt water, so it isn't drinkable. And of the 2.5% of the Earth's water supply that is fresh, two-thirds of that is frozen in glaciers or the polar ice caps. So you're talking only about 1%, really less than 1% of the Earth's water is fresh water, and now one-third of it is going to become bitter on top of that. So consider how that will impact life around the world. Trumpet number four is sounded, and with trumpet number four, all light sources are darkened by a third, it says in Revelation 8:12. That's the dimming of the sun, the moon and the stars, even though the moon is not a source of light, it reflects light. And so with that comes somewhat of an ice age on the earth. It'll obviously affect crops, the weather. So just in the um, blowing of the trumpets thus far, trumpets one through four, we now have a darker world, a world that is scorched, it is colder, it's going to be harder to breathe with less oxygen, it's going to be smellier, there's going to be an economic 
bankruptcy going on around the world. In addition to that, the seals that were broken before the trumpets were blown brought on war, famine, death of a fourth of the world's population, and natural disaster. So try to get an idea of the climate and condition of the world up to this point. Very, very dramatically different from what we enjoy now. Um, all those things will be transpiring in the days to come when the tribulation period of seven years comes upon the earth. Now, if you're recently new to our study in Revelation, as of chapter 4, Christians will be taken from the earth. So I talked last Sunday about the rapture of the church. So um, according to Scripture, as best as we can tell, uh, we will be taken from the earth before this tribulation period comes upon the earth, but it will be a terrible time. So we've made it through now the seven seals. We've made it through four out of the seven trumpets. And tonight from chapter 9, we're going to look at trumpets 5 and 6. Now, basically, trumpets 5 and 6, as we notice here in chapter 9, there are going to be some key words here that I want you to notice as we go along. You're going to see words like star. There's going to be a reference to the abyss. It's going to talk about locusts, scorpions, lions, and snakes. Oh, my. <laughs> now, there's going to be some language here where it talks about things like unto. Remember, this is John writing in the first century, and he is seeing things that are, as of now, many centuries, a couple of millennia away, and he's trying to describe these things using words that he is familiar with. And so it's, this is a difficult chapter because he talks with these similes, like, as, and he compares these things. And, you know, all we can do is try to piece it together because chapter 9, unlike other chapters, where he often clarifies himself, it goes without real detailed explanation. So as we're looking into these things, it's somewhat of a mystery, but we're going to tread lightly as we go along. Now, I will tell you, going into chapter 9, when you sew all these words together and you see the typology and you see the context and you see in other passages of Scripture where it refers to scorpions and snakes and lions and these kinds of things... What we believe we're looking at here, basically, is a reference to Satan and demonic forces. He's going to be using these terms to describe these very gruesome and terrible demonic forces that he sees. As the Lord allows John to look into the future here and see some of these things are going to come upon the earth. And basically what we have here between trumpet 5 and trumpet 6... We have the fifth trumpet being blown, which basically is about the torture of people by demons. And the sixth trumpet is death by demons. So obviously, again, not a pretty chapter, but uh, you'll see at the end of this chapter uh, why the Lord is doing these things and, um, unfortunately, uh, the way that people will respond. So as we dive into this, let's take a look here. Chapter 9, starting at verse 1. The fifth angel, this is the fifth trumpet, the fifth angel sounded his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss and when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. So let's pause there and dig this out a little bit. Now, in previous chapters, whenever we've referenced a star, a lot of times I've said to you that the star is probably a reference to a meteor, something falling like an asteroid to the earth. 
But this is different. And the reason we know this star is different, that it doesn't refer to a meteor, to an asteroid, is because verse 2 gives it a personal pronoun. Verse 2 says, when he opened the abyss. The star is a he. Now, we have to figure out who the he is, and there are different passages of Scripture that will help us to define the star. Notice, first of all, that when John sees this star, that it had already fallen. He didn't say he sees the star falling. He says, I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. This angel blows this fifth trumpet, and the vision that unfolds to John is a star that had already fallen. The star is probably a reference, best we can tell, to Satan himself. Let me give you a few passages. First, Isaiah 14. You can either turn there or just listen. But Isaiah 14, from verses 12 to 14, it gives us a description about Lucifer. Now, in your King James Bible, it uses the term Lucifer. That's a rough translation from the Latin Vulgate. But in the NIV translation that I'm reading from, it says morning star instead of the word Lucifer. So again, you're comparing star with star. Let me read to you from Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, to the heavens. Now, Isaiah is telling us that what happened, what transpired as Satan fell, as Lucifer rebelled against God, there were some different things going on in his heart, and he had five I will statements that he made in rebellion to God. Here's the first one. I will ascend to heaven, meaning I will assert myself far above. He's talking about power. Then he says, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Now, isn't that interesting? Already it refers to him as, O morning star, Lucifer, and then he aspires to raise his throne above the stars of God. In the context, stars is a reference to angels. Uh, Lucifer wanted to assert himself far above all other angelic beings and even, we'll see in a moment, above God himself. He says, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Here's the third I will statement. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. Number four, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds... And I will, here's the fifth one, make myself like the Most High, referring to God himself. So Isaiah documents for us the fall of Lucifer, referred to as a morning star. The Hebrew translation for Lucifer literally means morning star, day star, or light bearer. So there's this light aspect of every angel, really, but as it refers to Satan, he's seen here as this falling star. Jesus himself even said in Luke 10, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then in Ezekiel 28, there's another reference to Lucifer and the fall of Lucifer, Ezekiel 28, 16 and 17. And Ezekiel said that God's speaking here, So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, O guardian cherub. That's what Satan was at one time, a cherub, an angel. Uh, from the fiery stones, your heart became proud, so I threw you to the earth. So again, when you weave all this together, Ezekiel talks about Satan being thrown to the earth. Isaiah talks about uh, being, uh, Satan being thrown to the earth. Uh, Jesus says in Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth. All these things together, speaking of the time when Satan, Lucifer, rebelled against God and was thus kicked out of heaven and sent to earth. Now, 
as this uh, trumpet is being blown here, we see this star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. So this is a reference to Satan. And the star, verse 1 goes on to say, was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. Now, there's another important uh, word here. Let me just throw up, um, well, not just quite, abyss. Circle that word abyss. Uh, Several times uh, the word abyss appears in Scripture. Uh, Let me read to you from Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. This will be a familiar story to some of you. When Jesus sails across the other side of the Sea of Galilee to the region of the Gerasenes, and he encounters um, a demon-possessed man there. And in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, uh, when this man who was possessed uh, by some demons saw Jesus, this is Luke 8, 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him, listen to this, and they begged him, that is Jesus, repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. There is this place within hell that is the deepest, um, darkest, gloomiest place of hell. Abyss in the Greek is abusos. It's the negative prefix a, meaning no or not, the negative prefix, and busos meaning um, uh, pit or bottom. So abysos, abusos means without bottom. It's a bottomless pit, and it is this worst part of hell itself, and that there are demons being kept within hell. Now, that isn't to say that all demons are in hell. There are plenty of demons that are roaming, unseen to our eyes, in the spirit realm. Paul said in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There are demons that are active and present and at work within the world, in the spirit realm. But the worst of the worst of the demons have been kept in the abyss. And when this fifth trumpet sounds, God is, is allowing... Mankind to be tortured by these demons, we'll see in a moment, except for those 144,000 who have been sealed. And then some footnotes for you in regards to the star being Satan and the abyss of Busos. Um, We'll talk about locusts and uh, these other Hebrew and Greek words in just a moment here. But let me give you another reference to uh, these demons being kept in the, in the darkest, uh, gloomiest dungeons of hell. In Second Peter 2, verse 4, Peter says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, because remember there were, Revelation 12 will tell us, a third of the angels rebelled with Lucifer when he rebelled against God, those otherwise known today as demons. And so Peter says in Second Peter 2, 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into the gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. And then he goes on to talk about... Um, Uh, uh, the day of the Lord. So he speaks there about angels being held in the gloomiest dungeons of hell, waiting for what? For judgment. Then in Jude, verse 6, we read this. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these God has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains, for judgment on the great day. 
Now, it almost sounds like they're going to be judged, but it's possible that that reference to, to judgment on the great day is that God will allow them to exercise with limitation so that he, God, exerts his judgment upon the earth by using these demons. And as he releases them, he allows, and again, all of this is still under the sovereignty of God. They, the Satan is limited. You're going to see these demons are limited. Uh, you're going to see that, the, that what they inflict upon, upon mankind is limited. This is all still part of the sovereign work of God. I know this seems torturous. This seems like that God is just, uh, you know, trying to uh, punish people. Uh, but, but there's a, a greater point to all of this. So bear with me as we read through this. And I'm, and I, I'm sure you'll, you'll see it as we go. But now the fifth trumpet sounds... Satan, the star that's fallen to the earth, given, he's allowed to, given the key to the shaft of the abyss, he opens this, and when he does, verse 2 says, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace, the sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. Now remember, we already determined that a third of the light sources have been darkened, so it's going to be darkened even more. Now, you know what's worse than just demons who are torturing people? Is demons who are torturing people in the dark. You know, I mean, uh, you ever gone down into your basement when it's dark on a good day? And uh, so now consider just the, the sense of what life will be like when things are dark and, and it's gloomy and there's smoke rising. Now, the Bible doesn't say where the shaft of the abyss is. <laughs> you know, under some big rock and, you know, and in the tundra somewhere. I don't know. But there's some place on the earth where there is an opening to this abyss. And, uh, and it's opened. And verse 3, keep reading with me. And out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. Now, he doesn't say these were like locusts. He says they were locusts. But he says that they were given power like that of scorpions. So what he describes here are these creatures. But these will not be like your average everyday locusts. Because uh, they're not going to eat the vegetation. In fact, they're going to be commanded not to. So they're, they're not going to you know, be, be um, operating and functioning like typical locusts would. And in addition to that, verse 11 says that they had as a king over them. Uh, the angel of the abyss. So you see something very sinister happening here. Uh, by the way, Solomon, in all of his wisdom, in Proverbs 30 and verse 27, said that the locust has no king. Even scientists today are perplexed at how locusts swarm. They don't seem to follow a leader. And so we can read into this that this is just language that is figurative because since locusts don't actually have a king, we're talking here of creatures that are not typically like locusts as we would know them. These are demons. These locusts are demonic creatures. Uh, they take the form of, of some kind of a locust being. And by the way, I don't think these are the kind of things that you're going to be able to step on. Now, the Bible doesn't say how big they are. But I have... You, ever, you, know, you know that Terminex commercial where the, the, you know, this thing rings the doorbell and this guy answers it and it's like this termite or some ant standing there talking to him like, hey, I kind of lost my way and you got to give you directions. You know, and it's just because I have this weird... kind. I had the feeling it's going to be something like that. Somebody, something that's going to be able to look you in the eyeballs. Or even bigger. Something gruesome. And so you got these locust things happening and they're given power like that of scorpions of the earth. 
and verse 4, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, we talked in the last chapter about the 144,000, actually the chapter 7, the 144,000, we defined them just as chapter 7 tells us. These are 144,000 Jews who become believers in Messiah, in Jesus, 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They are dispatched basically around the earth as evangelists, if you will, and they are sealed, chapter 7 tells us, with the names of God and of the Lamb on their foreheads. And so they are protected by God supernaturally. So when these demons come upon the earth, those 144,000 who are sealed will be protected. And so they will be unharmed. Verse 5 says that they were not given power to kill them, kill people on the earth, but these demons were only given power to torture them for five months. And then it adds, and the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion, like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man during those days men will seek death but will not find it they will long to die but death will elude them so these demons are going to be given power and it's limited power because this is again part of the sovereignty of god now by the way part of god's mercy is that he's kept these demons locked up up until this point and um we can only imagine what the world would be like if, these, if the worst of the worst of these demons had been allowed to roam as other demons do presently. But they're released here for a season. Uh, and it says for five months. Now, the Bible doesn't really clarify that. Why five months? It's interesting to note that in Genesis 7:24, the Bible says that the floodwaters covered the earth for 150 days, for five months. So it seems to indicate a period of judgment that will come in the form of these five months. What happens to these locust demons at the end of the five months? The Bible doesn't say. Do they go back to the abyss? We don't know. But they have a sting like that of a scorpion. Now, I've never been stung by a scorpion. Any chance anybody here has? Some of you maybe. Have you? Probably not pleasant. Um, the um, sting of a scorpion... If, if it's venomous enough, can kill a small child, at the very least, for an adult, can uh, affect the um, central nervous system and um, the circulatory system. So I don't know how you're feeling. You look okay. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, some serious stings. Now, I don't know how it would compare to the sting of a scorpion now, but it's going to be so terrible. I, I, I can only imagine that the indication here is it's going to be that much more severe because people are going to want to die. They are going to wish to die. It's going to be so painful. But death will elude them. Now listen to me on this, because some of you right here are going to think, this is torturous. Why would God do this? This seems wrong. Why would a loving God allow people to be so tortured with such horrible pain that they would wish to die and won't be able to? They will not be able. Some of them maybe will try to commit suicide. They won't be able to die. Uh, they will wish to die and can't. Why would God do this? You have to bear in mind that there is a whole culture of people, uh, even today, who thumb their nose at God, want nothing to do with Him, curse God. And um, in fact, you know, you, you run into these... Um, I mean, I try to 
stay up to date with you know current events and stuff. Not that I follow the comedy of Kathy Griffin, but uh, she has a whole comedy routine called Straight to Hell. And uh, she, um, I wrote down a quote one time that she said, quote, she said, I am owning it. I know I'm going straight to hell. I have my hand basket all decorated, end quote. Now, you got some people that just, you know, they, they don't really care. They don't really believe. They, you know, they're, they're happy and proud to live the life that they are. They know they're going to hell, and, and they, um, they look forward to it in kind of a sick, demented way. And so what God, in essence, is doing here is allowing them to get just a small taste of it. But not to die so that, in His mercy... He's going to allow them to experience a little of it without actually having to go there. With the hope that, would you see how horrible this is and the pain of it and the torment of it, and the anguish of this, so that you don't actually have to experience it in full. I'm going to give you a taste of it so that this is what you're longing for. Is this really where you want to spend eternity? Do you, do you really want this? Here, experience some of it. So that hopefully these people who have continually uh, rebelled against God and um, cursed God will get a small taste enough that they won't actually want what they think they do. So I know that when we read this on face value, we think this is horrible. Why would God allow people to experience? Well, he's allowing them to experience it without actually dying and spending eternity there so that they will hopefully not want any of this and then turn to him because that, again, is all part of what this tribulation period is about. It is God's final wake-up call to rouse a rebellious world. Now, there's going to be a tragic response to this. We'll see it at the end of the chapter, but don't, don't get ahead of the story yet. But here's, here's the basis behind that. He's wanting people to experience a little, a tiny taste of hell and the torment and the anguish of it so that before they die, they will then decide for Christ instead of, instead of their hell-bent ways. So five months, and they'll seek death. They won't find it. Death will elude them. But what a horrible, can you imagine, you know, just the anguish of that. But again, the intent is that they would wake up, that they would wake up. Now, verse 7 says, Here's a description of these locust creatures, these demonic things. They looked, and notice all the times that the word like is going to be used here. They looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold. Now, they weren't actually crowns of gold, just something like it. They weren't actually horses. They, their body looked like horses. And their faces resembled human faces. Now, they didn't have human faces, but there was something about their faces that looked human-like. Verse 8 says their hair was like women's hair. So I guess they had, you know, a perm. And, uh, and, and, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. So a very you know odd description, but again, he's searching for words to, to try to communicate. Bless you. <laughs> that scared me. Uh, and, 
And, uh, but, he, but John is searching for words uh, that, that describe um, uh, these, these very bizarre creatures and, you know, consider that, you know, they look a little bit like horses. They, they got, you know, something gold on their heads. They, they have something that looks like human faces, women's hair, t- lion-like teeth, uh, breastplate, uh, you know. And so, and, and the noise that they make when, when their wings are, are rushing, like the sound of many horses and, and chariots rushing into battle, tails and, and stings like scorpions. So you can, you can see that he's struggling to try to communicate what these things actually look like and sound like. And again, verse 11, they had a king, they had as king over them, the angel of the abyss. Now, this is the fallen angel. This is Satan, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek, Apollyon. Now, Abaddon and Apollyon roughly both translate as destroyer. Abaddon more literally is destruction and Apollyon is destroyer. So in both the Hebrew language and the Greek language, um, John is wanting everybody to know, Jew and Gentile alike, this, this is the evil one who is behind this. This is the destroyer. This is Satan. This is the one who is the king over all demonic forces and principalities. Verse 12 says, The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. Now, uh, at the end of chapter 8, uh, the angel said that there were three woes. And that was the introduction to the three final trumpets. Trumpet 5, 6, and 7. So trumpet 5 is done. We've just read it. First woe is past, two other woes are yet to come. This is trumpet 6 and 7. And verse 13 is the introduction to the sixth trumpet. And so here we go. Verse 13, the sixth angel sounded his trumpet. And I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Uh, Let me just read a little further down and we'll come back. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. So trumpet number six, it sounds. And trumpet number six introduces a third mankind killed by these demons. A third of the mankind killed by demons. That's what verse 15 says. Now, Let's back up just a little and get and, um, and, and get a running start. So verse 13 talks about this sixth angel sounding his trumpet, hearing a voice. A release, verse 14, the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, these are not good angels because they're bound angels. So we're still talking about fallen angels. These are demons. And they are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, it doesn't really explain why that particular location. There's a few assumptions. Euphrates, there are four headwaters to the ancient Garden of Eden. In the book of Genesis, we know that the Tigris, Euphrates, um, Pishon, and Gihon rivers. Today, we still know where two of those rivers are, the Tigris and Euphrates. Now, are they in the exact location as they were in the day of the Garden of Eden? Not sure, because since the Garden of Eden, Eden, there was the great flood. So are the same Euphrates and Tigris in that uh, same location? Not sure. But going on the basis that they may very well be, Garden of Eden was located somewhere in what is modern Iraq. The ancient term is Babylonia. And uh, it's probably that these four angelic beings who are demonic creatures have been bound at the place where sin originated there could be another reason 
this same region of Babylonia is the place where all ancient occults originated. In Genesis chapter 11, when you look at the Tower of Babel, which really wasn't a tower, it was a ziggurat. It was a, kind of a pyramid kind of a shape with steps on the outside going to the very top. The very top of a ziggurat was for the purpose of worshiping the starry hosts. People who were engaged in ancient worship of the stars and the moon would go up the ziggurat to the highest point where they could worship the starry hosts. It was one reason then why God determined to confuse the language at the Tower of Babel, Babylonia is the ancient place that this tower was located because these people were worshiping the stars and the moon. It was the place where all occults originated. So you've got something happening here in ancient Babylon. Now, it is a place that we're still going to read about when we get to Revelation 17 and 18. Ancient Babylonia will be rebuilt and revived. Uh, Saddam Hussein tried to do it in his, in his day, spent millions of dollars, uh, found the ancient gate of Ishtar and, and was rebuilding some of those ancient palaces and places of Nebuchadnezzar, some of the very palaces where Daniel would have been. Um, of course, his days were cut short, but there's going to come a time when Babylonia and the ancient um, city of Babylon will be rebuilt. Revelation 17 tells us it'll be the center of a geopolitical religious system, it'll be the center of economic prosperity. And then Revelation 18 tells us it'll be destroyed again. So there's much to come, but this place still is significant on the timetable of end time events. These four demonic creatures have been bound there somewhere in this region of ancient Babylonia by the great river Euphrates. And um, they've been kept for this very hour, day, month, and year, verse 15. And then when they are released, they are released to kill a third of mankind. So uh, just giving you a few footnotes in, in that regard. Now, listen to this, please. This is massive death and destruction. We've already talked about how a fourth of the world's population is destroyed at the breaking of the fourth seal. Now, let's start with population numbers just roughly. Somewhere around 6.8 billion people around the world today. How many will get raptured? I don't know. Let's use round numbers so that we can keep, you know, an easy math for me. So let's say 8 million people are raptured. 800 million. I'm just using round numbers. 800 million. So now we're down to an even 6 billion people on the earth who are left after the rapture. Seal number four is broken. A fourth of the population is killed. That's one and a half billion or so. So now we're down to four and a half billion people left on the earth. And then we have here uh, the third trumpet. When it sounded back in chapter eight, it said many were killed. So let's use a round number and say half a billion. So now we're down to four billion left on the earth. With this sixth trumpet, we have a third who are going to be killed. So that's about 1.3 billion. So now the world's population is down to about 2.7 billion or so. We're talking roughly one-third of the Earth's population is still alive, and that's it. One-third of the Earth's population is still alive after the sounding of the sixth, sixth trumpet. And then it talks in verse 16 about the number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. It could be referring to still this group of this locust, demonic um, things that look like horses, kind of this, these mounted troops, not sure. Now, some people uh, want to read into uh, this in different ways, and I know you can read interesting commentaries, especially about these locusts looking like 
horses and having like the face of a man. And some people say that maybe this is a reference to Apache helicopter, Apache helicopters. And you got, you know, a pilot because you got, you know, a face kind of like a man there as a pilot. And you have, you know, the sound of the wings sounding like the rushing of horses and chariots. And it's possible that this is describing modern warfare. But I think when you look at the context of all these words together in, you know, abyss and locusts and scorpions and lions and snakes, I think we're talking something demonic more than we are modern military warfare. And then when it talks here about the number of troops was 200 million, people like to refer to a Time Magazine article in 1965 when Red China boasted of having a cavalry, not a cavalry, but uh, foot soldiers of 200 million ready uh, fighting men. Uh, in military service so you know and and it's just kind of bizarre that they use that exact number and then we read here 200 million uh, mounted troops Uh, and so you know are we talking modern military warfare here you can believe that if you want i think we're talking demonic stuff i think this is this is a a chapter entirely having to do with demonic principalities here Um, and 200 million of these things you know, one is enough. But when you're talking 200 million, this is, this is a demonic army that is wreaking havoc around the world. And verse 17 says, The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. The breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. This is where people say, well, maybe it's describing tanks. And, um, you know, and out of the mouth of the tank. Uh, but you know, apparently it, it's able to, you know, shoot in both directions because it talks about uh, verse 18. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails for their tails were like snakes having heads with which they inflict injury. Again, you can believe it might be tanks or something we haven't seen as of yet that can fire both forwards and backwards at the same time, and out of it comes fire, smoke, and sulfur. But since it refers to these things as plagues, uh, you know, I tend to believe that, again, it's inflicting something that is the result of demonic activity upon people, and, um, and it has the sting um, uh, like a scorpion, but their tails were also like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. It's a bad scene. You know, no matter what this actually refers to, The bottom line is it's a terrible scene. But here's the most tragic part of this ninth chapter. And it's the closing verses, 20 to 22, 20 to 21. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. That's the most tragic part of this chapter. Here, all these things are happening, and you would think that people would be like, okay, okay, we get the point. But yet it says they still did not repent of the work of their hands, the self-sufficiency of man, And how much we pride ourselves in being self-made people. Instead of turning to God, we try to exalt self. We put self on the throne. And therefore, God comes against self. You see, all these things happening. Notice, they did not repent. They didn't stop worshiping demons. So what does God do? He brings demons 
because people are so busy worshiping demons that he gives them a taste of, you want to worship demons? You want to be involved in witchcraft and sorcery and all these kind of occult practices? This is how it really works. So that hopefully people would realize, no, this stuff is terrible. And idols of gold, silver, and bronze, I think, and stone and wood, I don't think that these are actual, you know, carved images that people are bowing down to. I think in modern terms, we're basically talking about money and material things. Gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, things that people make with their hands. Self-made people who worship the almighty dollar. Wall Street is God. Self is God. And God himself is going to uh, whittle those things away and humble people to the place where they recognize that he is truly God and he is sovereign in all things. And yet they still don't repent. The word repent is used more in the book of Revelation than any other New Testament book. More than any other New Testament book. It is the word metanoeo. Meta meaning to change and noeo meaning mind or will. To repent means to change your mind and your will. To surrender to the will of God. It says at the end here, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts. Circle that. It is the Greek word pharmakia. P-H-A-R-M-A-K-I-A. Pharmakia. We get our English word pharmacy. Speaking here of drugs. Speaking here of things that induce a hallucination by um, the use of drugs, sexual immorality, thefts. I mean, these things speak of the condition of our own culture. Murder, drugs, sexual sin, theft. And God continues to work and work and work in ways that will bring people to humility. And tragically, they still did not repent. They still did not repent an indication of the stubbornness of man's heart. And I don't, I don't know where you are in relation to the Lord, but let me tell you something. If, if you recognize there's stubbornness in your heart against God, that you, for your life, have been putting self on the throne, you've been worshiping a lot of other things or a lot of other causes or a lot of other people except Jesus, may tonight be the night that you surrender your will, metanoeo, that you repent, that you change your heart and your mind and your will and you surrender your life to Jesus. Because this is a day that's going to come upon the earth. But you can make a conscious decision now to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to receive Him as Lord and Savior, have your sins forgiven, know the grace and the love of Jesus now, tonight, right here before it's too late, and then have the assurance that your sins are forgiven. You're going to be with the Lord. You won't have to go through this. So tonight might be the night of your salvation. Would you bow your heads and pray with me as we close our Bible study? We'll pick it up there in chapter 10 next week. Read ahead. But for tonight, if there's anyone here this evening who would say, Yes, you know what? I've put self on the throne long enough. I've put money on the throne long enough. I've been a self-made person. I've exalted self tonight. I believe the Lord's tapping on the door of my heart and He wants me to surrender my life to Him. If that's your heart's desire, I'm going to lead you in a word of prayer right where you're seated. That you can invite Jesus into your heart. You can change your mind and will. And you can will to surrender to Jesus. Would you pray with me with your heads bowed? If it's your heart's desire to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior tonight, I'm going to lead you in this word of prayer. I encourage you to pray it right with me, right where you're seated. You can whisper this prayer to Jesus. Just pray it. Lord Jesus, pray it with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. 
Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. No longer do I want to be on the throne. I want you to be on the throne of my life. So I surrender my will to you. I ask you, Lord Jesus, to take over my life, to be my Lord and Savior this day forward. I surrender to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, all of us here tonight who already know you as Lord and Savior, we pray for those who may have prayed that prayer right now, that you would seal them with your Holy Spirit, you would encourage them, and you would build them up in their faith. We rejoice, Lord, even when one sinner repents, we know that the angels in heaven rejoice. And so we rejoice likewise, and we give you all the praise and all the glory for what you're doing in our hearts, in our lives, and in our church. We thank you together in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen.